Welcome everybody to the gathering here at Journey to Church. Hope you're doing well tonight. wonderful to be here tonight with you all. Thank you so much for being here. I know there's plenty of other places you could be on a Wednesday night, but I'm grateful you're here tonight. I pray that God would continue to minister to our hearts tonight, that we would be changed and transformed as we encounter the living God through worship, through eating food, through fellowship. And through the reading of his word tonight as we go through this, I want to begin with a few words, just uh, seven or eight words, abandonment issues, apathetic, stingy, cold-hearted, rebellious, inattentive, immoral, cynical. Sounds like an honest dating profile. (laughs) But it's actually the book of Malachi, or at least what Malachi is up against. You know, life wasn't exactly easy for the people of Judah during the 5th century BC. Sure, they were back in their own land, but they lived under Persian power and authority. As for their land, it produced better waves of locusts than waves of grain. Even after the stones of Jerusalem's walls were rebuilt, most people remained stone cold toward God. The spiritual, ethical, and moral tone of the nation was low. What good is the Mosaic law? Why should we give sacrifices and offerings and tithes to a distant and a dormant God? We're cultured now. Our minds and values and practices are enlightened now. Our foreign friends with their foreign gods, they're more compatible to our liking for our lifestyles now. We marry and divorce. We marry and divorce because God, after all, has divorced us, hasn't he? Where are his promises? Life wasn't exactly easy for the people of Judah in the fifth century BC, but life definitely, definitely wasn't easy for a prophet to Judah in the fifth century BC because the task of a prophet is not to smooth things over, but to make things right. Tonight, we begin the book of Malachi, a book about abandonment issues and apathy, stingy, cold-hearted, rebellious, inattentive, immoral cynicism. But before we get to all of that, the abandonment issues, the apathy, the stingy, cold-hearted, rebellious, inattentive, immoral cynicism, I want to first set the scene, set the tone for the whole entire book by asking a couple of questions. Who, what, when, where, why, and how? So first, let's begin. Who is Malachi? His name in Hebrew is Malachi. Everyone say it with me. Malachi. Malachi. Good. 
But the question is, is Malachi a name at all? Is it a person at all? Should Malachi be understood as a personal name or simply my messenger, which is actually the literal translation of the Hebrew? We go back to a word, malach. Malach means angel or it can mean messenger. And here, what we see, see the thing that kind of looks at the end of the word. Remember, in Hebrew, we go from right to left. So at the end, under the kaf, it looks like a backward C. That little period is called a hirik. Everyone say hirik. That's a vowel. And then the thing that kind of looks like an apostrophe, that's actually a consonant. That's the letter yod. Everyone say yod. So this combination of hirik yod is what's called a pronominal suffix. Basically, what it does is shows ownership. This combination, so you have malach, which simply means an angel or messenger, but when you add the hirik yod, it adds ownership. First common singular, my angel or my messenger. And that's what malachi, his name, actually means. So whether it's Malachi the man or Malachi the messenger, we cannot say. But regardless, the title's appropriate because God commanded this prophet to give his message to the people of Judah. Well, what is his message? In one word, summed up nice and neat, repent. Repent. It means to, to turn from your old ways. You're headed in this direction and you do a complete 180 and turn the opposite direction. You've been going down this road to destruction and death and darkness. Now you're going to turn around and head on the holy highway toward God. Repent. Le religious leaders, skeptics, and cynics must repent of their sins and pursue holiness. Whether you're on the top pillar of society or the bottom rung, it's time to repent and trust God with genuine faith. You know, that's the message of here Malachi, of Jeremiah, of Isaiah, of Ezekiel, of Joel, of Hosea, of John the baptizer, of Jesus, pretty much all the good guys and girls of the Bible. Repent, turn back to God. So when does this take place? When does this all take place? I want you to flash back to the tribal confederacy. It was a time in Israel's history where the tribes were associated in a loose coalition. There's a, a map on the screen that shows you the 12 tribes of Israel. There's a map on the screen that will show you the 12. Is there someone up there? Barnett, are you up there? Are you alive? Do we need to check? There's a map, yeah, there you go, that shows, he was uh, joking with me earlier about just not, just not showing it and letting me like get into like a rage and just, so I think he's just messing with me. Tribal confederacy, 12 tribes who were loosely connected to one another, they become the united monarchy under King Saul and King David. Now, the next king who comes after David is King Solomon, and he kind of messed things up. And after Solomon comes the divided monarchy. You have the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. The northern kingdom of Israel was 
10 tribes. The southern kingdom called Judah was two tribes, Judah and Benjamin. Now, in 722 BC, Assyria, a great big empire from the east, came and destroyed the northern kingdom of Israel. The ten tribes are essentially wiped off the face of the map and out of the books of history. But during this time, the little nation of Judah clings on, even as the superpowers change from Assyria to Babylon. The Babylonian empire crushes Assyria and then comes to crush Israel, or Judah as well. They destroy Jerusalem, burn the temple down, and take all of the people and remove them from their homeland, almost all of them. There are a few who are are left. But they go across what's called the Fertile Crescent, because you can't go across the Arabian Desert, because that's just desert. But they travel all the way to Babylonia, which would be modern-day Iraq. And it's here that they live in ghettos. They develop a, a bunch of different things. But it's, it's a hard time. It's also known as the exile. This is between 587 and 539. In 539, another empire is on the rise called the Persian Empire. And Cyrus of Persia defeats the Babylonians and allows the people to go back home, rebuild the temple and the wall of Jerusalem. And it's here in this 5th century, this rebuilt temple period, that Malachi seems to find its place. Now, I know that that's a lot to take in right there. We just went through like the whole biblical history up to through the monarchy and everything. It's a lot to to soak in. But basically what I want you to to grasp tonight is that this literature of Malachi is post-exilic from like the mid-5th century. You don't really need to know the dates, 445 to 420, but it's post-exilic. It's after a devastating time of exile, but the temple's rebuilt and the walls have been rebuilt as well. So where does this take place? Where does all of this take place? In Judah, in an uneventful waiting period where it felt like God forgot his people. His people were enduring poverty and foreign domination in the little province of Judah. Sure, it was nice that the Persians let them go home, but they still were overlords. It's a bittersweet time and place. The temple was rebuilt, but nothing momentous had happened that would show that God had returned with his presence to fill it with glory. Generations were dying without receiving the promise, Many people were losing faith. So why? Why is Malachi speaking? It's not for personal gain or glory, but because of God. It's important to note that Hebrew prophets, they were not sorcerers or fortune tellers or mystics, but they were social critics who were involved in politics and in religion. It wasn't a glamorous thing, though, to be a prophet. They were subject to ridicule, torture, hatred, violence, and death. But prophets speak because God calls them to. So how does he do it? How does Malachi do it all? His style is quite different than the other prophets. It's simple, it's direct, it's, some would say, confrontational. It's terse and it's candid. He uses rhetorical questions. You know, there may be times as we go through the book of Malachi where it sounds a lot like Jesus. 
Sounds a lot like the way that Jesus spoke and would speak. He used the question and answer method extensively. This method became increasingly popular in Malachi's day. And in the time of Jesus, the rabbis and the scribes and Jesus himself would use this frequently. So before we get into the text, I know that's a lot that just came at you. I want you just to discuss a simple question. How would you encourage an apathetic, we're talking like bored, lazy, discouraged, disengaged person to re-engage with their faith? Go. Two minutes. All right, finish the thought, and we're going to move forward. Don't worry, we're going to do some more table talk here in just a few minutes, so we can even return to that question as well. But if you would, stand with me as we open up the Word of God and enter into the text of Malachi chapter 1, verse 1. It says this, a pronouncement, the Lord's word to Israel through Malachi. Now, before we pray, I got to clarify something here. Israel can be confusing when we see it in Scripture. Israel can often refer to the man named Jacob 
or it can refer to Israel, the northern kingdom, or it can here refer to Judah, or it can refer to Israel and Judah combined. So have fun with that, okay? <laughs> Let's pray. God, we ask you to open up our eyes, our ears, our hearts, our souls to you today. Teach us what it means to have our way of worship equal our way of life, and our way of life equal our way of worship. We love you, Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. So the book begins with one word in Hebrew. Here we have a, a pronouncement that's two words, but in Hebrew it's Massah. Everyone say Massah. Do you remember what Malachi's name in Hebrew was again? Malachi, Malachi. Everyone say that again. We don't want to forget that. Malachi. Come on, just try it. Don't be embarrassed. Well, this one's a lot easier. It's Massah. That's how it begins. Massah literally means the burden. It comes from a, a, a verb meaning to carry. It usually gets translated as an oracle or an utterance. It's a technical term used in prophetic literature to introduce a message from God. It comes from this verb meaning to carry, and it actually carries a nuance of burdensome warning. A message of burdensome warning. It's actually a threatening message that heavily burdens the heart of God and the heart of the prophet. It's kind of like a beware of dog sign on your front door. So that's what we're getting here, though, on the front page, on the first word. Verse 2a says, I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? God's first word to his people through Malachi it's short and it's sweet. I have loved you. And this is nothing new. God has expressed his love for his people all throughout their entire history. But now his people, they're questioning his love. How have you loved us, God? Because we don't see it. God, you've promised us a golden age of blessing. Where is it? We're struggling under the Persian oppression. Times are tough, so how exactly have you loved us? Their question, how have you loved us, it actually reveals a deep distrust and a hostility toward God. It's incongruent. It doesn't make sense. They should have responded to God's love with trust and appreciation by loving him and keeping his commandments. I want you to talk to the people at your table again tonight. How, where, when do you see God's love in your life? Ready, go.
About 30 more seconds. <clears throat> All right, let's finish the thought. If you said uh, everything, how, where, when do you see God's love in your life with everything, that's always a good answer. For me, I don't have to look far to see God's love in my life. In one sense, I think shame on the people of Judah for their distrust and their hostility toward God. But in another sense, I realize that I haven't walked through a Babylonian captivity and exile like they did. Sure, maybe I've experienced periods of life where it might be comparable to certain elements, but I don't think I fully understand what it's like to see my city pillaged and turned into a heap of ashes, my place of worship destroyed, the women raped, my leader's eyes gouged out, and then to be forcefully uprooted from my homeland and driven like cattle as a captive in a strange and foreign land? Yeah, I don't fully understand that. And that's biblically what happened to these people. So I get, in part, where the distrust and where this hostility might come from, but God had brought them back. God had brought them back. The temple's rebuilt. Don't you see God's hand in that? I guess not. And that's why Malachi's here addressing this. How have you loved us? That's the rhetorical question that Malachi puts in their mouths. God, through Malachi, responds to this rhetorical question in verse 2b through 3a. Wasn't Esau Jacob's brother, says the Lord? I loved Jacob, but I rejected Esau. Some translations might read, Esau I hated. All right, so this is confusing. We've got Jacob and Esau, and what's up with the rejection slash hate coming from God? Well, this reference to Jacob and Esau, it goes back to Genesis chapter 25 with the warring twins. The warring twins of Isaac and Rebekah. These are Abraham's grandsons, Jacob and Esau. God asked the people here in Malachi, is it true that Esau was Jacob's brother? The obvious answer is yeah. Well, of course, he was Jacob's older twin. Esau was that hungry hunter who got duped into giving up his birthright and then later his blessing by Jacob, the conniving trickster. It's a great story. You should look back to Genesis 25 and further on. It's a great story. But what does it mean that God loved Jacob? 
but rejected or hated Esau. We must understand that often in Scripture, to love someone means to choose to bless that person. Not to love someone means not to bless him or her. Normally in the ancient Near East, the father would bless the oldest son. But God did something strange here. He blessed not Esau, but Jacob over Esau. Why? Because he's God and he can choose to, to do whatever he chooses to do, especially with blessing. So when God says, I loved Jacob, but I rejected or hated Esau, this means that God chose to bless Jacob to an extent that he did not choose to bless Esau. You may say, well, that's not fair. Well, it's God, so take it up with him. But he illustrates all of this, this blessing of Jacob over Esau, by describing what happened to Edom, which is Esau's place. We'll unpack that in just a moment. Verse 3b says, I turned Esau's mountains into desolation, his inheritance into a wilderness for jackals. The image of Esau shifts here in verse 3b from being a person to being a nation, a country. Esau would later go on to represent the kingdom of Edom, while Jacob would later go on to represent the nation of Israel. Edom was located south, southeast of the kingdom of Judah, and they proved to be a continual source of hostility and conflict throughout Israel's history. The image here of Edom slash Esau's mountains turn to desolation, it refers to a series of defeats that the Edomites faced. That their inheritance, which means land, is turned into a wilderness for jackals, that also means destruction. You know what a jackal is? We got a a picture of a a fierce jackal. They're kind of like coyotes, but they're actually twice as small. They're actually four times smaller than a wolf. Jackals are members of the dog family common to Southwest Asia and North Africa. They look like large foxes. They look nice and cuddly, but don't don't believe it. They're shy, nighttime creatures that hunt in small packs. They eat garbage, vegetation, and unprotected small livestock. They probably eat cats like coyotes do. In the Bible, they are symbols, though, of isolation, of destruction, and abandonment, which is actually a fitting image for the book of Malachi, these people who feel isolated. They feel like they are still in a period of destruction. They feel abandoned. Uh, Jackal in, in Hebrew is tanot, and it can actually be translated as dragon. There's actually no word for jackal in Hebrew. It's tan, which is interchangeable with dragon. I don't know. You probably didn't need to know that. But (laughs) dragon and jackal is like the same thing. And actually, some translators go with dragon here over jackal. But it's like it's a creature that is howling in a desolate place. That's obviously a jackal. But they choose to go with dragon because that's the proper word that they see throughout 
Never mind. You don't even need to know this stuff. So, anyways, I don't know why they go with dragon over jackal. But the question is, what does this stuff have to do with anything? What is Malachi getting at? We've got Jacob and Esau. We've got mountains and jackals or dragons, whatever. Let's move forward and see. Verse 4 says, Edom, that is Esau's descendants and hostile neighbor toward Israel and God, may say, we are beaten down, but we will rebuild the ruins. This is Esau, Edom talking here. But the Lord of heavenly forces proclaims, they may build, but I will tear them down. They will call themselves a wicked territory, the people against whom the Lord rages forever. Even though the Edomites, that is Esau's descendants, were determined to rebuild the nation after the Babylonians destroyed it, they couldn't. They couldn't because God wouldn't permit it. He'd tear down whatever they built. And he'd tear it down so early and so often that everyone would see Edom as a wicked land, the object of God's wrath, not set apart for a special blessing. Whereas Judah was holy, set apart by God for a special blessing. The point is that Malachi is driving home here that Judah needed to consider. Judah needed to consider what life would be like if they were like Edom. If they had not been set aside or set apart for a special blessing. And if they weren't invited into a covenant relationship with God. How might your life look? You think you, you're not experiencing God's love? Look at Edom. Look at the example there. And then come back with an answer. Verse 5 says, Your eyes will see it, that is the destruction of Edom, and you will say, May the Lord be great beyond the borders of Israel. Because what else could you say? So by observing God's dealings with Edom, the people of Judah would learn of God's love for them and how his greatness extends beyond Israel. It sounds here like Edom gets it pretty rough. You may say this all sounds really, really harsh. Welcome to the prophets. That's what it's about. I've heard a a very respectable man I, I love and cherish who said the Old Testament to him is, is a long, sad story of Israel cheating on God. And we really see that come to fruition in the book of Malachi. But the point of this section, this beginning opening section, was to get the Jews, the people who are of this restoration community, they've been brought back from exile, the temple's rebuilt, the wall is rebuilt. They were thinking that God had abandoned them, and Malachi is challenging them to think again. God has not abandoned you. He has not forgotten his promises. Even though they seem to be experiencing the same fate as their ancient enemy, the Edomites, God would restore them because he had set them apart as a special blessing and entered into a covenant relationship with them. And this reminder of God's loyal love, it should motivate the people of Judah to return to God, and it should motivate us today to return to God. So if you feel divinely abandoned, 
If you feel apathetic about faith and even divorced from God, I want you to think again. Because God hasn't abandoned you. He wants you to keep living in right relationship with him. You know, uh, years ago, probably four or five years ago, I was uh, in an Old Testament seminary class with a brilliant uh, British scholar named Leslie Allen. And he studied like the most boring stuff in the Old Testament. He was a a scholar when it came to First and Second Chronicles. I'm like, I don't even like those books. I love you, God, but I definitely don't love First and Second Chronicles. But I was taking this course from him, and he was a really small gentleman, uh, big old glasses, uh, hair that was like all over the place, and he had a high-pitched British voice. But something stuck with me that he said, and it's affected me ever since. He said, Your way of worship needs to equal your way of life. And your way of life needs to equal your way of worship. You know, if you segment your life, if you say, well, this is my church life, this is how I act at church, this is how I then behave at home, this is how I behave at work, this is how I behave around these friends, or this is how I behave at school or or with my, my kids or whatever it may be, Your way of worship and your life of faith will also be segmented. You're not going to fully experience God. You may not even experience God at all because your way of life doesn't match up to your way of worship. But some of us need our way of worship to bolster our way of life. Where we come in here and we raise our hands and we're fearless, we're bold, We can do whatever we want because we're in the house of God and the presence of God is here and then we go out and we live a completely different life. This cannot be. And that's what Malachi is getting at. Your way of worship needs to equal your way of life and your way of life must equal your way of worship. So real quick, what I want you to do for the next two and a half minutes I want you to discuss, does your way of worship equal your way of life? And does your way of life equal your way of worship? And then I want you to pray for each other. Pray for each other that that things might change if they need to be changed. Or if you need support and strength, that you would feel supported and experience that strength. All right? And I'll close this out in prayer. So we're running out of time here tonight, but I don't want to interrupt your your groups, but I do want to respect your time. So we'll close in prayer, and if you want to continue talking and you want to continue to to pray for the people around you at your table, feel free to do that. If not, you guys are are free to leave, but let's thank God for this night. Lord, we are, are grateful for the book of Malachi, and it's opening on a strange note, and It's confusing, but Lord, I know that as we get further into it and as we get further into our relationship with you, Lord, things will be revealed. And Lord, as we sit tight and further along our relationship with you, God, you will help us to make sure that our way of life equals our way of worship and that we have balance and that our way of worship equals our way of life. So I love you, Lord, and I thank you for these people, and I pray that 
that we would walk in your path, Lord, that we would turn from deeds of darkness and walk in the glorious light of the Lord. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you so much for being here tonight, everybody.